Now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Joseph Men. Joseph Men is technology reporter for the Financial Times, where he covers technology security, privacy, and digital media. He was a two-time finalist for the Loeb Award, the most prestigious in financial journalism, for his coverage of Microsoft and the Hollywood writer's strike. His previous books include All the Rave, The Rise and Fall of Sean Fanning's Napster, and The People vs. Big Tobacco. His latest book is Fatal System Error, an expose on cybercrime. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Joseph Men. Hi, thanks, thanks very much. Thanks for coming out. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I know it's hard to get out on a, on a weeknight sometimes. Uh, and I'm feeling a little bit guilty about the, the title, uh, Will the Internet Collapse? So I want to define my terms here. If, you, if by the internet we mean the fundamental technology that allows computers to talk to each other, then no, uh, it's not, it's not going to collapse. Get that out of the way. On the other hand, um, the, the bad guys that I'm going to talk about tonight do have enormous and little understood capabilities to do very bad things uh, to the internet. I am pretty convinced that they can take out pretty much any company they want to. They could probably take out most, most countries. They took out uh, Estonia, which was, despite its, its size, one of the most advanced technologically countries in the world. In 2007, they obliterated government websites and banking sites. It was impossible to do international business transactions from within Estonia, and that's critical to the country. So uh, they basically shut Estonia down. They could take down, I believe, uh, one of the major internet carriers, uh, AT&T or, or Verizon or, or somebody else. I don't think they could take them down all at once, but they, they, can, they can do a lot of other uh, bad things. If, on the other hand, we're talking about the internet as we're actually using it today as a, uh, as a trusted medium for financial transactions and for doing business online, uh, one, and that's a, a aspect of our economy that's becoming increasingly important with a shift towards uh, services uh, that are operated from the, the cloud, as they call it. could just be email, but could also be you know, critical business uh, functions. Yeah, that, that, that could actually end, and uh, things are getting a lot worse without, I think, uh, much knowledge on the, uh, on the part of the general public. To give you just a, you know, just a brief snapshot of, of how bad, bad things are now, more than half of all credit card numbers are in the hands of criminals. They don't get around to using them all, um, but they have them. Things will get much more interesting when they have, have half of our debit card numbers, which is only a matter of time. More than half of all PCs have some kind of malware on them, and the type of malicious software that is going on those PCs is much worse than it used to be. It's now much more likely to be uh, something that records your every keystroke, um, can piggyback on legitimate online banking transactions. Even if you have one of those fancy little tokens that changes passwords every 30 seconds or so, the bad guys can, uh, while you're doing a legitimate transaction, they can piggyback and a transfer of money to Estonia or uh, the Ukraine or Russia or wherever. It's very hard to stop, and small businesses are starting to go bankrupt because of this. Most banks will make whole consumers uh, who get ripped off in this way, but they will not do that for businesses. And now businesses are going under and suing banks, saying that uh, it's the bank's responsibility, and it's, un it's unclear who will win that um, who will win that battle but um, 
guarantee you there will be multiple losers. It gets worse when you talk about the, the application layer. Most, most compromises of computers are at the application level, your Microsoft Word document, your QuickTime player, uh, what have you. The problem is that even if you are savvy enough to update your operating system and your antivirus and your firewall and everything else you're supposed to do uh, without an advanced degree in engineering, you're probably not updating all the individual programs. And a, uh, a company offers a free service wherein you can run a scan on your computer and see if there are any critical unpatched vulnerabilities on any of the applications that you have have running, and they turned up critical unpatched vulnerabilities on 90% of the machines from the probably relatively sophisticated people who took the trouble to go to their site and, and ask for the free scan. So basically computers are being compromised uh, willy-nilly and at an increasing rate. Antivirus companies cannot keep up at all. They typically have, have worked by tracking one, they find one infection, and they say, okay, look for exactly this infection on the next PC, and the bad guys learned that, and so now they're taught to morph on their own, and um, you can come up with thousands upon thousands of variants within a couple hours of releasing a new virus. What's more, the stuff is so good now that you don't have to be a programmer to deploy it. You can get a, um, a free kit on the internet that will uh, help you deploy a banking Trojan, and you can customize it and say what language you want, what bank you'd like to target. If you'd like uh, a text message when uh, one of your one of your victims uh, is logging on and doing a banking transaction. The stuff is, is, um, is, is really, uh, as I said, bad. And there are a number of reasons that we got this way. One is, is and probably the most fundamental, is, is, is the open architecture of, of the Internet. It's the most open network that's ever been deployed. Uh, and um, it, it worked uh, very, very well. But security was never built into it, and it doesn't discriminate against from one kind of traffic to another, whether you're a, um, a bad guy or a good guy. And that worked well for a while, um, and uh, we had the web boom. And then when things started to get, then right when people started relying on the Internet for stuff that it wasn't designed for, financial transactions and the like, we happened to be in an administration that was uh, pretty allergic to all forms of regulation, and so uh, nothing significant was done in terms of cybersecurity. And now things are, are um, unfortunately much worse. You know, the, the wonderful thing about the Internet is that nobody's in charge, and the terrible thing about the Internet is that nobody's in charge. And there, it's, it's now so big that um, it's going to take some pretty drastic, but I think doable, fixes. Another reason that things continue to be bad is that uh, people don't know what's going on uh, because nobody, that's partially because it's legitimately complicated. The technology is complicated, the, uh, the legal issues are complicated, and it turns out that the geopolitics are very complicated and quite important. But it also uh, remains misunderstood because nobody has an incentive to tell you what's going on. Microsoft and Dell and HP want you to buy computers and be happy, uh, and they don't want to tell you that it's really scary doing stuff online. Even security companies that sell you firewalls and uh, virus protection, all that sort of thing, want you to be concerned enough to buy their products, but not so concerned that you realize that their products will not actually protect you anymore. And it's a very rare law enforcement official that wants to call a press conference and announce that they can't catch anybody. So there's no... Few people have the, the, the whole picture, and fewer still are, uh, have any incentive to tell you about it. I've been covering this stuff for more than 10 years uh, for the LA Times and more recently for the Financial Times. And a key change happened in, um, in um, 
around 2003. That's when viruses started getting commercial. Uh, before that, uh, some disaffected teenager might knock over the eBay website for a day for bragging rights or something like that, and there were dumb viruses that shut down PCs randomly or, you know, uh, told a stripper that uh, the author uh, lo loved her. Um, but around 03, it, it, got, it got to be big business. Um, and this was because spam was being filtered out, and so it was useful to amass lots of computers and disguise the addresses where spam, were coming from, from, spam was coming from. <clears throat> and the easiest way to do that is to send out a virus that takes advantage of one of the hundreds and hundreds of vulnerabilities that everybody knows about and nobody patches, um, or not enough people patch and assemble these, these herds of, of, of robotic uh, computers, which generally just perform worse than, than normal, but otherwise you know, get ignored. Most people don't know that they've been compromised. So the first thing uh, that they do is send out more spam. Um, and that was sort of interesting, but not really important. But then the second thing they started doing, if you have a bunch of computers, a really easy thing to do with them is do these distributed denial of service attacks, which is when thousands upon thousands of computers ping a website at the same time until it can't handle the traffic and it crashes and real customers can't get to it. So um, I thought that it was uh, important to explain that there was some sort of shift that seemed to be organized and commercial and, and important, and um, I would like to try and uh, tell people what was going on. And uh, it was kind of hard to do for a daily newspaper, um, but... The, the denial of service gangs made it kind of easy, because anybody can really understand that. And beginning in late 03, they started targeting business websites with a very simple message, please send $40,000 via Western Union to these names in Latvia, or your site's going to stay down. Anybody can understand that. So I, I called the businesses that were getting hit. Uh, and the first wave uh, of, of targets were offshore gambling companies in uh, Costa Rica and elsewhere for very logical reasons. Uh, they've got a lot of cash. Uh, they cannot afford to be down during, on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, they don't have great infrastructure. There's not a lot of bandwidth to absorb the sort of attacks in countries like Costa Rica. And they're highly unlikely to go to law enforcement, particularly in the U.S., which considers what they're doing illegal. So I called those companies, and they talked to me uh, about what was going on. And they said, you should really talk to this guy, Barrett Lyon, uh, he, he saved us. He, he, uh, he patched up our infrastructure. So I thought, okay, that'll make it a little more interesting. Let me track down this Barrett Lyon guy. And, um, you know, I kind of expected him to be some boring guy at a big security company surrounded by PR people who wouldn't let him say anything interesting. But I called him and he said, yeah, I'd be happy to chat. And he comes to my office and he's 25 and he's wearing flip-flops and shorts and, um, and a T-shirt. And I said, okay, uh, you know, tell me what you did to protect the companies. And he told me a little bit of the, the geek stuff about how he protect, beefed up the infrastructure, wrote some good code and stuff like that. And I said, so do you have any idea who the attackers were? And he said, yeah, I chatted with him. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, I, I, um, I tracked back where the robot computers were getting their orders from, and uh, it was from an internet relay chat channel in, in Kazakhstan. And so I joined the channel, and I pretended to be a bad guy. And it took a couple months, but, um, you know, I built up a rapport with him. I said, that, that's, that's amazing. You, you don't have a... You know, you don't have any copies of those chats. So you say, oh, yeah, here are the transcripts. And I uh, said, so we didn't get their, you know, their real names, did you? Oh, yeah, got one. Uh, Ivan Maxikov, um, yeah, he, he, he's in Russia. Um, and he tricked him um, over the course of a couple months uh, into giving up his real IP address and uh, some other things and eventually got his, his real name. And so, well, law enforcement isn't interested in the case. And he said, well, the FBI wasn't too interested, but uh, the British, they really cared. They sent somebody to Russia. I said, wow, that's amazing. They... 
didn't arrest anybody, did they? Yeah, yeah, they arrested three guys. Um, uh, I said, really? Um, and it just got getting, getting better and better. And he, he's, he's one of the heroes of, of, of the book. Um, because what I, I was trying to do, what I'm trying to do with the book is, is educate people in a painless way and, and have an adventure story. And that's, that's what it is. It's an adventure story. Or as a friend of mine at Google called it, it's a, a public po- policy document disguised as a crime caper. And uh, Bar- Barrett is, 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 is the first hero. And the second guy is the British detective that went to Russia and lived there for three to four years um, and, and rode this case. Um, and for a while there, um, the Brits really did cybercrime right. They created this elite unit called the National High Tech Crime Unit, and it was you know the top one percent of, of of police could could apply to join, and they had expertise. And unlike the FBI and the Secret Service, they they had this sort of broad outlook. The fact is that that ninety percent or more of serious cybercrime goes overseas, and at that point we generally tend to give up because what it takes to get cooperation, even from our allies is a, a lot of paperwork, something uh, called a Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty, um, requires you to, to write a letter, and if you're a detective working on a case, it, you know, it goes to your boss, and then it goes to the Attorney General, and then it goes to the State Department, and then it goes to their you know, equivalent of the State Department, and then it goes down, you know, and it takes months to get cooperation, even from somebody who wants to help you, um, let alone Russia or China. But what the Brits did is they saw that this was going to be coming up. And so they sent people to go out and wine and dine the, the cyber cops in Moscow or Latvia or wherever before they needed them. And they well, what are your needs? How can we help you? Would you like some new computers? Uh, how about a nice bottle of wine? Um, and they built up personal relationships. Um, and so when they actually needed help, they got some response when they called. Andy Crocker is the British detective who went to Moscow. And he got stonewalled for about four months, and he wouldn't go away. He, they just kept giving him more forms to fill out, and he'd fill out the forms, and he'd drink vodka with the colonel while they, you know, the, the colonel's detectives did some work on it. And then a number of things happened, uh, but the big one was that the British Foreign Secretary at the time, Jack Straw, was coming to Moscow for a summit with his opposite number, and he said, we want help on, on this case. And, and that's what got the ball rolling. Um, the reason the Brits cared so much, I should say, is that the same cyber extortionists that were knocking over Barrett's clients were attacking publicly traded uh, British gambling companies next, and, and they're perfectly legal. The Tony Blair's government decided that we're going to make e-commerce safe, and if we have to go to the ends of the earth, we'll do that, and that's pretty close to where Andy went. I'd like to tell you about one of his uh, adventures in arresting these guys. Um, uh, let me just uh, read, read a, brief, uh, a brief bit of the book here. So the first guy that they arrested was Ivan Maxikov, um, uh, who Barrett had fingered. And Ivan was a 23 college student uh, living with his parents in a very uh, unglamorous town. Um, and he was getting about $2,000, but he was the technical mind of the gang. And he, immediately, he had immediate remorse and allowed them uh, to watch what he did as he continued to chat with the other, uh, the other members of the criminal ring. Maxikov drew out the uh, uh, um, one of his uh, one of his colleagues in the in the ring, uh, whose codename was Zet in online chats. Andy considered Zet to be the most central figure identified so far. He'd hired Maxikov, and he knew some of the other conspirators uh, very well. And he was one step away um, from one of the titans of the cyber underworld, named uh, King Arthur. Through Maxikov, Andy got Zet's real first name his internet address, and finally his street address in a city of uh, half a million called Astrakhan in southern Russia. In December, Andy and one of uh, um, 
of the deputies from the Russian MVD flew to Astrakhan. Uh, and out of concern for leaks, the MVD practiced the minimum disclosure, which said that uh, we're only going to tell the police chief that we're coming to his town and the deputy police chief, uh, in case they wonder who's getting, you know, who's hauling who off in handcuffs. Both of those top officers met uh, Andy and the deputy, Alexei Morning, at the airport and drove them to a hotel to drop their bags. Then they invited the men to join them for dinner, as it was too late to arrest Zet that day. The police chief was a large, chubby man with short, spiky hair. As the uh, drinks flowed, he, uh, the police chief, Petrov, was friendly and attentive. He asked Andy if he liked boar hunting, and he did like hunting. Petrov su suggested they go shooting together, and he said he'd be delighted to as soon as the arrest was over. No, the police chief told him, we should go tonight, right after dinner. Andy began to get a bad feeling. <laughs> he managed to get close to uh, morning and then whispered, pretend to go to the bathroom and then get out of here and flag down a car. Once you've got one, honk the horn, I'll go to the bathroom and out the back door. Now the grim Russian economy worked to Andy's advantage. While real, real taxis were scarce and expensive, most citizens outside of Moscow, fortunate enough to own cars, were happy to earn a few extra rubles by giving strangers a lift. Morning did his job, Andy made it out, and they drove back to the hotel. They decided to hole up in Andy's room, doubling their numbers in case of trouble. They locked the door and did their best to sleep, knowing that they would need to be up at 5 a.m. to make the arrest. But the phone rang at 2 a.m., jarring them both upright. Andy, it's eager, said the colonel, running the investigation. The man you're going to arrest is the son of the police chief. I'll get on the first plane to Astrakhan in the morning with some men, but don't open your door for anyone. Oh, shit, Andy thought. He hung up, and the two men pushed chairs and whatever else they could find against the door. They only had one gun between them, a cheap Russian pistol. An hour later, at 3 a.m., came a pounding on the hotel door. Hotel security, a voice bellowed. Open up. Andy shouted back, no, we're fine, go away. The pounding continued. Hotel security, you must open this door immediately. Deciding to show that they were serious and armed, Morning shouted that he had a gun. The men outside went away. Andy and Morning stayed on full alert, not budging till 9 a.m. when Eager and the cavalry arrived. Needless to say, they didn't get the son of the police chief that day. But the police chief was arrested uh, for a while. It turns out he'd previously headed the cybercrime unit of the Astrakhan police force before he was ascended to chief. And the FSB did arrest him, and mysteriously he was released uh, a month later and allowed to return the, to, the, to the police department, though in a, a lesser capacity. Something of a, something of a pattern that was, uh, Andy, uh, Andy saw. Barrett, um, during this time, uh, was having um, difficulties of his own. After he defended these companies and fingered the bad guys, the uh, gambling companies set Barrett up in his own new company to protect lots of other folks from denial of service attacks. And that was going great for a while, um, and he got pretty well known, pretty, pretty famous in the security community. Um, I wrote a story about him, other people had stories about him. But by around the third time, he had to meet payroll by going to a parking lot and meeting a guy named Vinny who had a manila envelope full of 20s. He decided that maybe the people he, were working for, uh, he was working for, his investors, were not the greatest folks in the world either. <laughs> Um, so he's juggling that moral question. Let me say a little bit more about the American mob, because um, the Russian mob is clearly doing very well here, and I know those of you who are patriotic are concerned about where our boys are in this race. Um, <laughs> they, need, they, need, they need some help. They need a, a congressional handout, I think. Um, they, they are really good at poker, uh, and the fact that poker is legal elsewhere has been a great boon to them. Um, turns out that uh, Barrett's backers were interned backed by the Gambinos, 
uh, Barrett had the good grace to uh, go back to the FBI and wear a wire on them and out himself as an informant for what is really a subplot uh, in the book. It was really nice of him. Uh, he's beefed up his personal alarm system since. The Gambinos do make more money from internet scams uh, than anything else. They made $650 million from one scam, and one of the key figures in that uh, left the country, uh, was not arrested, and later joined a company called uh, Party Poker, uh, Party Gaming is the parent, as director of online marketing, and then um, left conveniently right before the uh, uh, unbelievable IPO, uh, which made the main owners billionaires. Uh, so he, his existence didn't have to be disclosed in any filings. Uh, but even the legitimate poker companies have people with that kind of background. So they're, they're, our, our guys are primarily in, in poker and haven't really, uh, not through like trying, but they haven't really gotten big on um, identity theft. So Barrett is trying to decide what to do. The other thing he does, he's, he goes back to see what the bots are up to. And the bots are no longer doing denial of service attacks. We're now in 2006 or so. Now they're stealing everybody's financial goodies. Uh, the same gangs had, had evolved to much more sophisticated stuff uh, with the aid of uh, these, uh, sort of this, this thriving underground economy wherein uh, people will write you a virus uh, custom made uh, for extra money. You, can, um, you get not only credit card numbers, but a maiden, name, a maiden names that go with them. Uh, anything you want is very efficient. Strangely, it all, all goes back to, uh, to Russia, or a lot of it goes back to Russia, Eastern Europe. Uh, Ukraine is pretty big. Um, that's where the bad guys are. And I'd like to say why that is. Um, there are a few reasons. One is that Russia and these other countries, uh, largely Russia, have been really good at technical education, math, computer science, uh, and related fields. But there's been, um, there isn't a Silicon Valley there. So the cr legitimate career opportunities are much fewer. Secondly, uh, there is... Uh, Crime is generally just not seen as that bad. There is a culture of corruption that is really staggering um, and is hard to understand unless you've been there. I'll give you two sort of points on that uh, to illustrate what I mean. There are a lot of different police jobs you can have. At the high end, uh, if you're in a, a powerhouse in the MVD, which is the equivalent of the FBI, you can make 500 bucks a month salary in one of the most expensive cities uh, on the planet. The lowest paying job uh, is of a traffic cop, and that's the job that everybody wants because Traffic Cop has the most opportunity to interface with your public uh, and shake down your public. This is just completely normal. Um, as far as the MVD goes, it's understandable why even the good guys are on the take. Uh, you can't really support anything for 500 bucks a month. And everybody knows this, and there's a joke that some of the detectives there told, told Andy, which, uh, which goes as follows. Um, American tourist loses his passport in Moscow, or actually has it stolen does the right thing and calls the U.S. Embassy to report that his passport's been stolen. The embassy guy says the right thing, which is, oh, well, did you call the MVD? And the tourist says, yeah, they say they didn't do it. Uh, and the MVD thinks this is hilarious. You know, um, you know, everybody knows how corrupt everybody is over there. So um, a lot of the, uh, so you got a lot of, a lot of cyber bad guys in Russia, um, and it hasn't really been talked about here, as I said, because the FBI doesn't want to say, well, we can't catch these guys. Probably the most famous bust uh, for years and years was the uh, disintegration of one of these underground uh, economies, uh, mini economies, uh, called Shadow Crew. Um, and there were four administrators of Shadow Crew. Uh, this is big news in, in 04. Um, uh, one of them was the guy who ratted out his buddies, a man named Albert Gonzalez, which is a name that's good to remember. 
and then there were two guys that, and he got a get out of jail free card because he was the informant. Uh, two guys went down, and the fourth administrator was in Moscow, uh, and he was indicted, and you know was never been heard from again. He's fine. He's not in a cell anywhere. Unfortunately, Mr. Uh, Gonzalez uh, went on to do the uh, uh, T.J. Maxx heist uh, and others, which are ten times as large as anything. While he was a supposedly an informant, he was also doing the biggest identity thefts in U.S. history, uh, 40 million credit card and debit card numbers. And again, when they fi- finally arrested him, um, they didn't really advertise the fact that he'd been an informant and completely hoodwinked them. But they also didn't say they made him out to be an arch bad guy, which he is, you know, by U.S. standards, he is. But... In his most recent indictment, it's, it names, uh, he worked with Hacker One and Hacker Two in Russia. Um, Hacker One and Hacker Two's names are Annex and Grig, um, their handles. They are known to the Russian government, and they're not going to be arrested, um, I don't think, in my lifetime. Um, so there's a pattern that, that keeps repeating here, because we don't take this stuff as seriously as the Brits did in the heyday. Um, we don't bring it up in uh, summits uh, with, with, with Putin. Um, and we need to, or these things will continue to get worse. So when Barrett walked away, it was in part because the denial of service attacks seemed to be yesterday's battle. But then they came back, and that's one of the reasons that Andy Crocker had, uh, was not just a pioneer in seeing to it that three guys went to jail in Russia for eight years apiece, um, but also perhaps the last of his kind. Um, uh, there haven't been any cases like that since. The people he was after were convicted in, um, in 06. In 07, uh, we had Estonia, which was generally considered to be the first cyber war, um, and, which con- included denial of service attacks as a sort of a blunt force instrument. In Georgia, it was even more clear that Russia was involved because not only did they target government sites, um, but they also targeted media sites in cities that were about to be invaded. So at a minimum, um, they had advanced knowledge of which cities were going to be seeing you know, ground fighting uh, by troops. A lot of uh, some very good security researchers traced those attacks to machines that were used by um, uh, the Russian Business Network, which is one of these criminal groups uh, in Russia. Um, it's the same machines that are used for various criminal things, child porn, uh, phishing attacks, viruses, um, were used in the attacks on Georgia. Uh, and it was, when I was in Moscow, I went to Kaspersky Labs, which is a pretty decent antivirus um, company, but it happens to be in Russia. And I asked them about why these criminals at the Russian Business Network weren't caught. And it's funny, because I was with the founder, uh, Eugene Kaspersky, and a couple other guys, and they gave me different answers at the same time. And one of them said, well, the Russian Business Network is just uh, an internet service provider, some of their clients are criminals, but they're just a service provider. They're not doing anything illegal. At the same time, the other guy was saying, well, the FSB, which is the successor agency to the KGB, is doing everything they can to find them. They, they just can't find them. And think, well, if they're not doing anything illegal, then why are they working so hard to find them? And I really don't know of anyone the FSB has really tried hard to find that they can't find. Um, so um, that basically does not hold water. So what we have here is, um, is a, a very bad situation out of Russia. China is a little different. Um, China, in Russia you have organized crime, powerful organized crime groups with official protection that are basically after money but are now being 
protected not only out of garden variety corruption, but for, um, for political reasons as well, because these people are very useful for denial of service attacks. And if you have hundreds of thousands of bot computers, some of them are going to be inside Fortune 500 companies, some of them are going to be inside the Department of Defense, you'll get good stuff and you can, um, uh, it's, it's useful to your government. China, the evolution is the other way. Um, it starts out with so-called patriotic hacking, um, uh, and they uh, attacked, um, there were lots of attacks on U.S. targets after, um, after a uh, plane was shot down. Um, there, there are things that are, you know, there's lots of attacks on Taiwan, and, you know, there's, it's all, it was all very politically motivated fairly clearly. Um, and then there are all sorts of official Chinese strateg military strategy papers um, that, that talk about um, cyberspace as being one of the West's uh, soft, soft ribs and underbelly uh, and a way to um, get back uh, strategic power in the world. So they've gone uh, through this vacuum cleaner approach uh, where they suck down as much uh, corporate um, information as they can, military secrets, and they've gotten a whole bunch. Um, uh, it's it's um, easy to read up on the stuff. They've gotten a lot. But now, now they've sort of moved to more of a profit motive. They've, these, uh, the, the, the non, the non, there are plenty of state, directly state-controlled hackers, but there are also criminal groups that uh, have uh, that are now starting to look for money as well, and are allowed to do that because they provide all these handy secrets as well to sort of as a quid pro quo in exchange for operating freely. So, basically, what we have is the worst organized crime groups in the world, which is pretty bad, protected by uh, at least two major powers uh, in the world, which is worse. Um, and they benefit not only from an industrial policy, if you will, of you know, conscious government support, um, uh, but also a better capitalist system than we have. Um, the, the ecosystem is fantastic. Um, uh, and they have, the bad guys work really hard, and they reinvest uh, in R&D. Um, and in the meantime, we have what economists would call, if they're paying attention, market failure. Um, wherein uh, companies don't know what to spend on security because they don't know if they've been hacked, usually, um, and uh, they don't know what is successful in keeping out hacks. And it's very hard to talk to a CEO uh, if you're a chief technology or security guy and explain why you need more money um, when we already haven't been hacked. Or, you know, it, it's hard to make the argument. Um, so we have a big problem. Now, in, as to how much worse it's going to get, um, I, I guarantee you it will get worse. Um, and some folks say that we're going to have a cyber Katrina wherein uh, the electric grid goes dark as an act of warfare. That could happen. Um, there are other lots of really bad things that can happen. I am actually sort of more worried about uh, what will happen if none of those things happen. Uh, because typically the way things work is you have a disaster and then you get decent regulation or consumer protection. If we don't have a disaster, then we're going to be the proverbial boiling frog. and um, and gradually, people will lose trust in electronic commerce, which is uh, which will not be uh, not be wonderful, um, and uh, and things uh, things will go downhill from there. Um, but there the, there is good news here, actually, which is uh, thanks in part to Google, uh, which in January announced that, um, or at least strongly implied that it had been hacked by the Chinese government and was therefore going to uh, pull out uh, part of its operations from China. There's a much greater awareness than we've had before, and more importantly, it's not. It's not just geeks talking to geeks, but it's, it's regular people talking about this and as a matter of foreign policy, which is where it needs to be. It's, it is a law enforcement issue, it is a technology issue, but it is um, maybe primarily um, a, a foreign policy issue. Um, 
and there is there are bills that are pending in Congress that would do some things, and um, there is there is a, the beginning of a public debate about what to do about this problem, um, and uh, I think we have a, a, an opportunity uh, here that we haven't had uh, for a long time. Um, uh, Obama last year in May gave an entire speech devoted to cybersecurity, which nobody had ever done before. It was kind of mind-blowing to me. I've been covering this for 10 years, and wow, we have the President of the United States giving a speech about cybersecurity. Now, unfortunately, one of the things he said he'd do was appoint a cybersecurity czar right away, and it took until January uh, to appoint one. Um, but um, oh, we do have one now, um, Howard Schmidt, who is okay. Um, he's, he's, uh, you know, he, um, he's, got, he's got a lot of work to do. Um, but there, there are some things that I think are, are clear, clear need to be done. Um, one of, clearly need to be done. One of them is um, we need to get over the allergy to regulating uh, in general, and we need to get over the allergy to uh, regulating things that are related to the internet. There are a couple of primary things where this has got to happen. Uh, one is the electric grid. Um, th there needs to be uh, serious control of uh, how those. The, the, the mechanisms that control um, the power, power grid should not be connected to the internet. They should be done the old-fashioned way, as they are in other places. Um, in banking, uh, banks should be required to disclose how much they're losing to fraud. Um, they don't now. If, if you borrow $100,000 and don't pay it back, the bank writes it off as, you know, maybe you lost a job, whatever, it's a, it's a bad debt, we write it off. If you, if, uh, if you borrow $100,000 and don't pay it back because it wasn't actually you that took a loan, it was somebody pretending to you, they write it off as a bad loan and, and it's all lumped together. They need to figure out uh, how much is lost to actual hardcore fraud and disclose it, and then you can see in their SEC filings that Bank of America lost 1% of its revenue to fraud and uh, uh, Wells Fargo lost 2%, and then the shareholders will say, well, you know, maybe we ought to go with the other guys and the customers will say, maybe we ought to go with the, otherwise, the other guys, and there will be actual competition on the basis of security. That would be a very good thing. Um, software liability. Uh, there, there should be some. Uh, there isn't. Um, it's, uh, you know, norm normally if you sell something that's a piece of junk, you can sue, and that's product liability law, and it makes lawyers uh, richer, um, but it also protects consumers. Um, and uh, through their reading of the law, uh, judges have been convinced that software is not sold, it is licensed, and therefore um, not only can you not sue if there's something wrong with it, you can't change it and you can't do other stuff. Um, that, you know, if that's the way they're going to read the law, then we can provide the judges with a different law um, that should be passed by Congress. Um, there is, um, you know, the conservatives have been happy about uh, some of this debate because uh, Russia and China are bad and we are weak and we need to do things in, in foreign policy that's tougher, and that's all true. Um, but uh, the left should also be pushing for serious privacy laws, which we still do not have in this country, which are commonplace elsewhere. Um, uh, we should be pushing, um, uh, the left should be pushing, pardon me, uh, should be pushing for um, much better education uh, and serious uh, research and development into, I think, um, a different internet protocol, a more secure internet protocol. I don't think, from talking to these people for years, uh, I don't think it's, it's fixable. And I'm not saying that the internet, as we know, it should go away tomorrow. It's, it will be great for watching YouTube videos and chatting with your grandchildren and stuff like that. But we, we need a different secure uh, protocol that has better authentication uh, and much better control over what, uh, what stuff that is downloaded is able to do on your machine. There are a lot of good things uh, that, that, that people could come together on. And I, I, I think we actually have a shot of getting it done. Um, but education would be a really good place uh, to start. And, um, 
I just, it's a, it's a great time to, to save the internet, and, um, and we can still do that. And I think we should try really hard. Thanks. Hi, David Bloom. I'm just curious. You mentioned uh, changing the protocols. IP6 is uh, the one they're talking about. Do you think that that's the answer? There's been a lot of conversation about that. And in a related way, the, a related question is, uh, there's been a lot of fighting by the Chinese to try to pry away American control or perceived American control of ICANN. And I'm curious about, do you see that as an effort on their part to keep those doors open for their cyber attack uh, capabilities? Uh, or is it a, a broader I, 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 I wish the Chinese were afraid of ICANN. I, um, you know, I, um, I think, uh, you know, ICANN is... Um, uh, moves awfully slowly, uh, lots of consensus building, which takes a long time, and well, I think they're doing some good things. They are so under, undermanned um, and uh, have accomplished uh, pretty pretty little to date, I think, on core security issues. Um, cautiously optimistic that'll get better, but I'm more cautious with them than I am optimistic. Um, as far as IPv6, you know, it's an improvement. It's a good thing. It doesn't. It, it actually creates some some new problems, um, um, and uh, you know, so do other things that that are happening along those levels. I mean, I think DNSSEC is is actually a more important um, thing, and hopefully that'll get that'll get pushed out uh, pretty heavily. There are lots there are lots of things that um, I can and well-meaning folks um, and registrars and elsewhere can do. Uh, and should do. There's also good things that consumers uh, can do. Uh, they should not use debit cards online. They should have an automatically updating antivirus and all these other things. Um, uh, but it's, it's really what we need more than anything else is a mindset change. At the consumer level, <clears throat> you could used to assume that your stuff was safe unless your computer started doing something weird, and now that's not true anymore. Now you should really assume that there's a you 50-50 know, chance that your stuff is out there floating around in, in, in the Ukraine and being sliced and diced, and you should check your credit reports regularly and all that. And you should just not assume that you're safe until you find out otherwise. Hi. Uh, Phil Lilligal. Uh You're talking about um, controlling the Internet and, and software liability. How do you respond to the EFF and other groups that are going to say we live in a mashup culture? and the ability to have flexible software is one of the fundamental freedoms of the internet. And what you're proposing essentially takes away the right to do that type of thing. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to say that. Um, like I said, I don't think um, the good old web that we have now, the internet that we have now, needs to go away. Um, I think it can stick around as long as people find it useful, and it's great, and it probably will, whatever, whatever we think or do. Um, <clears throat> what I'm saying is that there should be a separate protocol that is more secure, uh, that might take lots of money to make um, and uh, take many years to develop. But um, I think we need that kind of a fundamental system if we're going to do financial transactions. A few months ago, the FBI uh, took the trouble to warn um, uh, small businesses that if they're going to do banking online, that they should have a computer that does nothing else. Don't read the BBC on it. Don't check your email. Don't do anything. Just bank online. Because if you go to, it doesn't matter. If you, you only go to trusted brand name sites, you can still get infected very easily by stuff that it's going to rob you blind. And many companies are now trying to keep their crown jewels only on computers that are not connected to the internet at all. And I think people should, regular people should do that as well. Um, if we're talking that kind of drastic stuff, then you know, internet as currently designed does not work. 
for, for business transactions. Uh, Anthony Rodriguez, I, I read your book, I loved it, it's, it's amazing. Can you talk a little bit how like Carter Planet is still operational? After Carter Planet? Yeah, and, and also what, did Barrett actually work with the FBI? I don't wanna give the book away, but did he actually work with them at one point and is he in jeopardy? Uh, so Carter Planet was the um, was the granddaddy of these underground websites uh, where all the bad guys got together and had thousands and thousands of registered members. Um, and uh, one of the uh, heads of that uh, outfit was named is King Arthur. Um, and uh, King uh, Andy tries to get King Arthur and finds out uh, quite directly that he's protected by the FSB, um, the spy agency. But you'll have to read the book for that. Um, uh, Barrett uh, continued to work with the FBI. Um, you know, he had, uh, you know, he, he he wound up wearing a wire against his uh, against uh, the former president of his company, and in fact, um, his company was in part with part because of Barrett's help. Barrett's company was named in the the biggest uh, the biggest gambling bust in New York City history, at least to that point. Uh, a couple years ago, so there. I mean, there's all these mobsters um, and um, and some other company names, and then there's Prolexic, and that was that was Barrett's company. Um, so basically, you had a guy that deliberately infiltrated the Russian cyber mob and accidentally infiltrated the American cyber mob, um, and so far he's alive and working on his third startup. Um, he hasn't. He 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 didn't do China. He didn't do China. Yeah. I think he may be done with the mob. I think he'd like to do something else. Um, Christian Bordal. Um, so Joe, f uh, for those of us who uh, got onto Macs again once we uh, found out that they're supposedly more safe than PCs, what can you say about uh, whether we also should be worried about uh, being infiltrated just the way people on PCs are? Yeah, great question. Um, uh, Macs are safer than PCs as we stand now uh, and probably will be for a while and that is for two reasons. The uh, the kernel is from FreeBSD, which was a you know a good, um, well tested, uh, thoroughly kibitzed um, um, system, uh, free operating system. Um, it had a lot more eyes on it for a long time, and it is fundamentally more secure. Probably the bigger reason that Macs are safer is that they have a smaller market share, and this is all very well economically driven. And you know if you are writing a virus, it makes more sense to try and sell it as something that can infect 90% of the world's computers rather than something that can affect 10% um, of the world's computers. But like these other steps, like having antivirus software, even though it doesn't, you know, it's more and more flawed, um, it's, it's a good thing to do, but the more important thing is the mindset and you, you are not safe. Um, uh, people's uh, email accounts in particular are, are hacked. And with social networking, it's much easier to social engineer a hack um, now. You get an email you think is from your friend and it's not from your friend, and you click on a shortened URL because um, that's what you're used to and you're taking God knows where. Um, and that, that'll, that'll hurt people. That system hurts people with any operating system. Hi, uh, Aris Blevins. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, sort of organized misinformation that goes sort of, that seems to be going more hand in hand with a lot of what's happening in terms of political discourse and I'm sure it is definitely a big part of the, all these phishing scams and, and how that's happening in terms of governments and businesses using that uh, to organize and create, you know, fake information, uh, propaganda and fake websites and, and, and how much these hackers are actually being fed information, how they're building up this, this sort of false uh, structure online. You know, our government and other governments work to spread false information on, on the internet um, in other places. Um, as 
part of, you know, that's, we are taking, we as a country, at least militarily, are taking cyber war seriously. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've just are standing up in, uh, in Fort Meade a uh, U.S. cyber command that's going to be run by the head of the NSA. Um, one of the problems, and the NSA actually does a lot of good stuff overseas. Um, one of the um, one of w one of the things I found though is that if you're in the if you're in, in the military, it, it's a lot more fun to buy new cyber weapons and do more offensive things. And some of that's propaganda, and some of it's other stuff, you know, how to infiltrate foreign networks, how to take down foreign networks, and it's a lot um, it's a lot more drudgery defending what we have. Um, Barrett, um, when Barrett became you know, uh, you know, famous within this world, he was invited to some of these closed door conferences in Washington, where he met a lot of people from three letter agencies, and um, <clears throat> they're all excited about his ideas and what he'd done. And uh, he's a, he's a really really smart guy, um, and uh, but they wanted to, they wanted to pick his brain for how to attack other countries um, and terrorist groups should they get more computer literate than they are now, and uh, and not about defense. And Barrett just said, you know what? Forget it. You know, it's it, it, right now. It's we're all using duct tape, and that's not that's not going to work. It doesn't matter how how much damage we do to somebody else. Uh, Rory Johnson, the um, problem you keep on talking about is the internet, but the problem isn't actually the internet. It's the computer. It's very easy to make a computer not secure. To secure, all it has to do is not do what the things coming down the internet tell it to do. You have to start a program that says, listen to what's coming from the internet and do whatever it tells you. And now it may be the mistake was made so many years ago that there's nothing can be done about that, but it really needs to be considered that that is the problem, not the internet. That's a good point. There are a couple things on that. One is that people, with the exception of those who really like the iPad, um, people want computers that have more and more power and browsers that do more, and, and all, the, all those programs have too much power and can do too many things to your computer. Uh, and so they will act on, on bad things that, that come from the internet. Um, so that's more of like a social education slash I don't know problem. Um, there, there are ways that can be, that browsers can have less, you know, less authority. Chrome is, was a step in that direction. Um, that's a good thing. But you know, the knee jerk thing is that Microsoft slaps a button on there and says, you know, this program wants to operate. Do you approve? And you know, and you click yes, and everybody clicks yes, and it's just annoying. Um, um, it doesn't. It doesn't really help anything. There, there, there. Computers can be made safer too. The iPad is safer. Uh, it just does less. And that's that's another kind of weird trend that we're that we're looking at. I mean, it, it seems that people are. The stuff is so bad uh, right now. Your odds of getting infected are so high that people are opting for these more closed. Universes, um, and that's 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 really unfortunate. That's going to slow development. Um, you know, it's going to have a bunch of people clamoring to be an app. Um, you know, but it, it's not it's not the mass ecosystem that we were benefiting before when when everything was was go go and security wasn't as bad as it is now. Thank you, Mr. Men, for joining us. Thanks. Thanks a lot.